Ralph Waldo Emerson, the great transcendentalist philosopher and essayist, once received an essay from a young man. We don't know his name. We happen to know he was friends uh, with Oliver Wendell Holmes, who later would become great Supreme Court justice. In any case, this young man was looking for the opinion of a more established essayist, and this particular essay was a critique of the philosopher Plato. And Emerson sent the essay back with a short note that said, when you strike at a king, you must kill him. And uh, this is a line apparently Emerson liked to use in various ways and at various times in his career. The idea is if you're going to try to take down Plato, you better be ready, right? Some believe uh, that this line of Emerson's was borrowed from other thinkers, perhaps going back to the 16th century political thinker, Niccolo Machiavelli. And it certainly sounds Machiavellian. More recently, the reason it came to my attention is it's become kind of a popular phrase in certain areas of culture because it appeared in the television show The Wire, which I've never watched and I, I don't recommend it. I have no idea what it's about, but it's probably nothing edifying. But uh, the character says, you come at the king, you best not miss. And what these quotes have in common, aside from the general idea of kingship, is that kingship is mostly about power, and especially the power to bring enemies to heel. And this is perhaps why today's solemnity can feel a bit ambivalent. So it's good for us to ask questions like, what is a king really? And the related question I have is, what is power? But let's start with the idea of a king. This idea of a king is a practically speaking universal idea. It is found in most ancient cultures because human beings must live in societies. We have to live together. We must support one another. And in the ancient world, this often meant gathering together for mutual defense against aggressive enemies. And to work together under these conditions, like war, for example, requires a unified goal, strategy, and tactics. And in primitive cultures, the king is simply that man who leads the people into battle, who's the effective leader under these circumstances. Oftentimes he earns this right by being the best warrior. He might even simply be the tallest man around, best looking, as King Saul was. That's how uh, Samuel and the people chose him. Kings harness then all of the energy of the people who are loyal to them. And the power of mustered troops uh, can be quite great, especially as societies get larger. So kings become more and more powerful, powerful persons. And even in peacetime, they become uh, focuses of the people's unity and common sense of purpose and identity. But what do you do when you're not out fighting? How do you establish your legitimacy? This is related to power. Well, when kings weren't out fighting, uh, they kept the society functioning usually by giving gifts, and this meant that they had to wage war to get plunder and spoil to have things to give to people. And especially they had to buy off other powerful men because uh, there were always others who thought they could do the job better, and you had to make sure that those persons were loyal. You wanted them fighting on your side and not against you. And again, this says something about power. And the, I'm going to quote another, or paraphrase another philosopher here, Hegel. Power always requires at least two parties. You have to have the person who has the power and the person who accepts it or, you know, abides by it for whatever reason. 
the master and the slave is how Hegel would have put it. So when the person who's not a king ceases to treat the king like a king and give him allegiance, the king begins to lose power over such a person. I mentioned this idea of legitimacy, and this is uh, when subjects feel a certain spontaneous allegiance. They recognize that the king is doing a good job, that he comes from the right family, etc. Then the power is exercised fairly easily and without controversy, but this is not the case oftentimes in a monarchy because uh, things don't go well in life. So when a king is losing his power, he can get it back by more gifts, by rituals of obedience, um, knighting people, for example. Or in more extreme cases, he can resort to assassination of his rivals. So a king's power can be pretty precarious in this world, let's just say that. So it's interesting that Pilate considers Jesus a genuine threat. You know, this, uh, this idea of kingship was a very live one for Pilate. It's no game. It's not a fancy thing about palaces and tabloids. Uh, it's a question of, do you have people who are going to come to fight for you against the Romans? Right? The, uh, the Romans allowed for kings, but only if they professed their allegiance to the empire. So King Herod could operate, but he couldn't necessarily muster his own armies except with the uh, approval of the emperor. So who's this Jesus? Is he a king? There's a calculation going on in Pilate's questioning. How many men and of what sort can this Jesus marshal to bring against the Roman troops? It seemed that more than a few were ready to acknowledge Jesus' legitimacy as a descendant of the dynastic founder, King David. He just entered Jerusalem the previous Sunday, we would call it, and uh, the people were claiming him son of David. This is dangerous, right? This potentially means that many of the Jews were ready to give Jesus power. He could have that power. And to put their own energy and power at his service, should he decide to revolt against the occupying Roman army. Now, Jesus, in point of fact, says very clearly, his kingdom is not of this world. In effect, he's saying that he's not a threat to the Roman order, at least as Pilate would understand such a threat. So how is Jesus a king in that case? Well, first of all, we can say he has fought our battles for us. He came into the world to defeat our real enemy, which is sin and death. His resurrection is proof that he is victorious. And uh, as I love to point out, that icon, the Pantocrator, the center of the altar there, is Jesus' ascension to the throne of glory and his return as king. He is all-powerful. And he is because he has won. He has vanquished our enemies. But as I said, authority, legitimacy, power, these are two-way streets. So Jesus is not demanding our obedience today, nor is he threatening us with penalties if we refuse to do his bidding. Uh, We can choose to stay uh, bound to sin and death if we we want. Um, That's our choice. He's giving us a different way. He's inviting us to ask ourselves uh, some hard questions. As human beings, we have to live as part of some society. Which society sets my goals and strategies? Is it the kingdom of God? Or is it the power structure represented, say, by the media or various organs of the government or peer pressure of some kind? Uh, are we, do we act because we want to make a good impression with a certain group of people? Who am I giving power to over me? Is it Christ or something else? 
To whom is my allegiance? When a king orders his subjects to take up arms or to pay taxes or to participate in some secular liturgy, uh, this is uh, a liturgy is simply when people come together and uh, acclaim the king or some other policy of his. That's what we're doing today by the liturgy. We're claiming Christ king and we're saying we're going to be faithful to him. When a king does this in the world, uh, the subjects obey. They pay their taxes, they take up arms, uh, they bow down and acclaim him king. Have I made Jesus Christ the king of my heart? Today, yesterday, Am I going to do it tomorrow? Have I thought about the gifts that he has continuously given me, the sacraments of the church, the grace he gives me, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the hope of eternal life and the hope of a pure conscience? In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is among us. So Christ is our king to the extent that we acknowledge him in our thoughts and in our actions, acknowledge his law, his vision for the world. And let me end by returning to one last idea that I mentioned that pertains to kingship, and that is that kings are points of reference for unity among a people. A king sets the agenda, the policy, but the agenda is only as good as the loyalty and good faith of those subjects who put the king's policies into action. This is to say that the seriousness of our acceptance of Christ as king is only as serious as our acceptance of the church, that society that he has founded. This is both in terms of its binding precepts and its hierarchy. Unfortunately, that's what we usually limit the church to when we talk in these terms. You've got to obey the hierarchy, that kind of thing. You do. Uh, we do. It's not just, I, I'm not uh, separate from you in that way. But it's also the whole of the body of Christ. It's the whole church, all of the baptized. The world will know that Christ is my king if I love my brothers and sisters in the faith. Because by doing that, I will be enthroning Christ in my own heart. Our Lord has further said in the person of the king, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, that what we do for the least among us, we do for him, for the king. And this is a king whose reign is not at all about arbitrary power. This is why he says he is the truth and that those who listen to the truth come to him. Uh, we're, we're not putting some uh, you know, uh, arbitrary person on the throne. We're living according to the truth, the best thing we could do. And we'll discover that our relationship to Christ's power is not one that partakes of this, the limits of the world. It's not limited to master and slave anymore. Rather, when we rule with Christ, we do so by obedience to the truth of his teaching, and we, we master ourselves. We master our wayward passions. We become actually free to be the persons we are. And this is because, again, Christ's kingdom is not of this world. It's not limited to a, a realm in space nor a length of time. Nor is his dominion exercised in competition with other people's power, with other authorities. This is why other theistic religions don't have things like the saints, as we do in the church, who partake in a direct way in Christ's authority and kingship, but without losing their uniqueness, nor crowding out the glory of other saints, much less crowding out the utterly unique kingship and authority of Jesus Christ. 
to whom be dominion and power forever and ever. Amen.